Welcome to the Whitefields Community Church Podcast. For more information about our church, including location and service times, visit us online at whitefieldschurch.com. If you are blessed by this message, please consider sharing it with others and leaving a rating or review on your favorite podcast app. Today's message comes from our series, 2 Corinthians, Strength and Weakness. Good morning, everyone. Please open with me in your Bibles to the book of 2 Corinthians, chapter 7. What we like to do here, why it feels like to study through books of the Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. So currently we're in a study of 2 Corinthians, and we're picking up where we left off last week in chapter 7. So go ahead and turn there. And as you do, please bow your heads with me and let's pray. Lord, thank you for your love and grace towards us. Lord, thank you that you are the wellspring of life. And so we come to you again today expectant, expecting to hear from you, but also desiring that you would do a transforming work in our lives through your word today. So Lord, we avail ourselves to you. We have open ears to listen, open hearts to receive, and we ask that your word would have its full effect in our lives. Lord, you know what we need, whether it's comfort, encouragement, perhaps even conviction today. And so we ask that you would meet us in these places, meet our needs through your word, by your spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I was a junior in high school. At the time, I just got my driver's license, and I was, I was driving myself to school, but there was also this girl in my neighborhood who went to my school, too, and so I used to drive her to school every day. Every morning, I'd pick her up, and we'd drive to school together, and as we got to know each other driving to school, I quickly found out that she was a Christian. Now, I really liked this girl a lot. I kind of had a crush on her, and so I told her, well, oh, that's cool that you're a Christian. Hey, you know what? I'm actually a Christian too. And so after all, I said, I went to Lutheran school growing up. I know a lot of stuff about the Bible, like for real. But the thing is that this girl actually knew me better than I thought she did. So uh, she, she had seen the way I acted at school and the things that I was involved in and the things that I did after school. And so at one point, we were driving home from school one day, and, and we pulled over to talk. And she said to me, you know, I know you keep saying that you're a Christian, but I don't think you're actually a Christian. And I was like, what is that? Like, excuse me? Like, what do you mean? I was shocked. I was offended that she would dare to say something like that to me. And she explained, well, hang on. She said, if a Christian is somebody who follows Jesus, well, then look, from what I can see, you're not somebody who's following Jesus. Now, I certainly understood where she was coming from when she said that. But nevertheless, I was still shocked and offended that she had the audacity to tell me that she didn't think I was a Christian. And then as we were pulled over in the car, she got out a Bible out of her backpack. She opened it up to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 7, and she read to me the very words of Jesus, which are kind of, kind of hard to argue with, right, if you're saying that you're a Christian. Here's what she said. She said, not everyone who says to me, Jesus said, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven he says, on that day, many will say to me, it's on judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And so this girl, she asked me, is that you? Are you that person Jesus is talking about here who knows a lot of things about God, 
But in reality, you don't know God, right? Like you don't have a relationship with God. You don't actually follow God. And I said, no, that's definitely not me. But the truth is that those words, when I heard them, it was like a dagger to my heart. I knew it was true and I knew it was me. And so I dropped her off and I went home. And that night I wrote a letter to her telling her how offended I was that she would dare to judge me like that. And I told her, you don't even know me. And then I opened up the Bible and I searched for a really long time until I found that verse that says, don't judge or else God's going to judge you. And then the next day I handed her the letter when she got in my car. And then for like a week, we drove to school in absolute silence. But the truth is that I knew that she was right. And I knew what God wanted me to do. But I was too afraid to do it. That's the truth. I was afraid that if I repented of my sins and asked God to forgive me, that God would require something of me, that he would require that I change some things in my life. And I wasn't sure that I wanted to do that. And yet those words of Jesus, they haunted me. This idea that I might one day stand before God and be told, depart from me because I never knew you. And this began to cause me a lot of grief, a lot of stress. I became worried that I was going to die and I was not going to go to heaven. And this girl who was supposedly my friend, she had caused me all this grief and all this stress because of what she said and what she read to me out of the Bible. And yet, here's what I want you to know. The grief that she caused me was actually one of the greatest gifts that I've ever received. Because that grief is what eventually led me to turn to Jesus and surrender my life to him. See, it took a while. It wasn't right away. But eventually, I came to the point where I said, God, if you will forgive my sins and give me a new start, then I want to know you and I, I want to give my life to you. And in that moment, it was like uh, this gigantic weight fell from my shoulders. And since that time, I've experienced so much joy in knowing the Lord and walking with the Lord. But it all started with grief. You see, it all started with anguish, with someone telling me what I needed to hear, even though it was hard for me to hear it. And even though I pushed back at first, the grief that it caused me ultimately led to repentance, which led to joy that I would have never imagined. The title of today's message is How Grief Can Turn to Joy. And here's what we're going to see in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 2 through 16. Here's what we're going to see. Here's our summary sentence that I'd love for you to take note of, write it down, take a photo of it, so you can take this idea with you as you go today. Here's what it is for today. The remedy for grief and guilt is turning to him who bore our griefs and provides present comfort and eternal hope. So let's read that one more time. Then we'll break it into a few parts and use it as our outline, our guide for studying these verses today. So the remedy for grief and guilt is turning to him who bore our griefs and provides present comfort and eternal hope. So let's talk about that first part. The remedy for grief and guilt. Writing to the Christians in Corinth, Paul the Apostle says this, starting in chapter 7, verse 2. He says, Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. 
Now, one of the reasons why Paul wrote this letter is because he had a, a strained relationship with the Christians in Corinth, right? The Christians in Corinth and Paul, they had a tough relationship. It was strained. There was a rift relationally. So Paul is writing this letter in an attempt to repair this relational rift that exists between him and the Corinthians. Now, in ancient Greek, there was a common saying. And the common saying is kind of like we say, like, ride and die, right? They would say, to live and to die together. That was a reference to friendship, right? And so Paul is telling the Corinthians, he says, you guys are my friends for life, basically. That's what he's saying. Now notice, though, that Paul switches this phrase around. The, the Greek phrase was to live and die together. That meant friendship. It's kind of a euphemism for friendship. But Paul says to die and to live together. You see, he switches it around. Now, most Bible scholars believe that what Paul is doing here is very intentional. What he's doing is he's taking a common saying from that time about friendship and switching it around on purpose in order to highlight the unique hope that we have as Christians. You see, as Christians, we don't just live together and then die together. No, 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 we die and then we live together even forever. You see, to be a Christian at those times often meant to put your life at risk because Christians were subject to persecution, even sometimes persecuted to death. But listen, even if you didn't lose your life for following Jesus, they understood that what it means to be a Christian, following Jesus, it begins by dying to yourself, humbling yourself before the Lord, taking up your cross and following Jesus, being crucified with Christ in which the old you is put to death and you are born again to a new life in Christ. So the essence of Christian friendship isn't just that we live together and then die together and that's it. But as, to, as followers of Jesus, First, we die together to ourselves. We die in Christ, and then we begin to live together. And so Paul says, I'm acting in verse 4. He says, I'm acting with great boldness towards you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort. In all of our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. Now, why was Paul so optimistic about the Corinthians? Why was Paul so positive about the Corinthians? Why, you know, it, it's kind of, Surprising here, because the Corinthians had said some pretty gnarly things about Paul, some pretty negative things about him. They had criticized him openly. Uh, they hadn't been very nice. So how is it that Paul can say that he's proud of them, that he's overflowing with joy when he thinks about them? And the answer to that question is found here in our text in just a few verses from now. So stick with me, but keep that in mind. Why is he so optimistic about them? We're going to see that in just a few verses from now. Look with me, if you will, at verse 5. Paul says, For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. Okay, so here in verse 5, we come to the end of kind of a subsection of this letter called the Great Digression. Now, you might remember that we talked about that back in chapter 2. The Great Digression, it was this thing where early in this letter, 
Paul was telling the story of his journeys and why it is that he hadn't come to Corinth, even though he apparently had promised to do so. And then he kind of like interrupted himself, said a lot of things. And now here in chapter seven, he's like, okay, now picking up the story where we left off. He left off talking about how he was going to Macedonia. Now he says, okay, so when we got to Macedonia, here's what happened. So Paul had gone to Macedonia looking for Titus. Titus was a friend of his, also a partner of his in the work of the ministry. And despite all the dangers and difficulties that Paul faced on this journey, God used Titus there in Macedonia to bring comfort to Paul. Now, I love this verse, right? It says, God who comforts the downcast. I wonder how many of you have ever felt downcast. How many of you have ever felt discouraged, perhaps even depressed? It's worth taking note of what it says here in verse 6. God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus. That's interesting because in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, the first chapter of this letter, Paul had told us, that God is the God of all comfort who comforts us in all our affliction. So he says, God is the one who comforts us when we are distressed. But here, Paul tells us that God comforted him through the coming of Titus. In other words, the way that God comforted him in this exact moment, in this particular season, was through a Christian friend. You know, I think many of us, when we're discouraged and downcast, our natural human tendency is to withdraw from people and to isolate, right? That's a common thing when people are feeling downcast, discouraged, depressed. Our natural tendency is to withdraw from people and to isolate. But I want to encourage you as we look at this passage. Those are the times when we especially need to push in to fellowship with other Christians, Again, this is one of the reasons why you hear us say over and over here at the church, we want you to join a group and join a team. Why? Because those are the places where you're going to build relationships with other Christians as you study together and as you serve together. And oftentimes, it's when you are in a dark and difficult place that those relationships are going to pay dividends. When God will use those Christian friends of yours to speak truth into your life when you're tempted to believe the lies of the devil. You know, this verse reminds us of why Christian community is so important. Because sometimes the way that God brings us comfort and encouragement is through other Christian people. You know, the church is called to be the body of Christ in the world. His hands, his feet, his mouthpiece. And sometimes you're going to be on the giving end of that, right? God is going to use you in that way in somebody else's life to be his hands and his feet, his mouthpiece. But you know what? There are other times when God is going to put you on the receiving end of that, when you're going to be on the receiving end. And, and again, this is just one more reason why it's so important to stay connected to the body of fellow believers. Well, listen, not only was Paul comforted and encouraged by the presence of Titus, but he was also comforted and encouraged by what Titus told him about how the Corinthian Christians had responded to a letter that Paul had sent by Titus's hand. Look, at, it explains it more in verse 8. Check this out. He says, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. The letter Paul's referring to here is not 
the letter we have in our Bibles that we call 1 Corinthians. This was a different letter, which Paul sent to Corinth by the hand of Titus, who carried it down there and delivered it by hand. You see, not every letter that the apostles wrote ended up in our Bibles because the early Christians understood that not everything the apostles wrote was necessarily inspired by God. So it's helpful here to kind of remember the sequence of events, if you will, the timeline. So I've got a slide here that just kind of breaks it down for you to remember some important events in this scenario. Sometime after Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, he made a quick, unplanned visit to Corinth. This is the painful visit that Paul refers to in 2 Corinthians 2, verse 1. Now, this visit didn't go very well at all. And so because it went so badly, Paul then decided not to go back to Corinth in person, but instead to send a letter which he had delivered by Titus. So Titus took this letter that Paul wrote and took it to Corinth personally and delivered it to the people there. And in this letter, that, that's this letter that Paul's referring to, this severe letter that he talks about here in 2 Corinthians 7. In this letter, Paul strongly rebuked the Corinthians for some of their actions and attitudes. That's the letter that's being talked about here in verse 8. Now, Paul mentions that he knew that this letter was going to cause them grief. And he says, you know what? There was a moment after I handed that letter to Titus, kind of like when you push send on the email, and then all of a sudden you're like, ah, I can't get that back, right? Oh no, what, what did I just do? Well, it was kind of like that. Like Titus walks away and he's like, oh, what did I do? I, I shouldn't have sent that. That was too harsh, right? Too, too much. But then he says, you know what? I regretted it for a second, but now in the end, I don't regret it. I don't regret that I said those things to you, even though I know that it grieved you to read those things. And he explains why. In the end, he doesn't regret saying those things in verse 9. He says, As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. You see, when the Corinthians read Paul's letter, in which Paul rebuked them in very strong words, telling them that some of the things they were doing were wrong, the Corinthians were grieved. Now, it's important. The word grief there, and some, if you're reading from a different translation than the one we're using, it might say sorrow. So the idea here, this grief refers to a feeling of sorrow or sadness that comes from realizing that you did something wrong. Right? This is what we would generally refer to as a sense of guilt, a guilty conscience perhaps, feeling a sense of sorrow, grief, or guilt because you know that you did something wrong and you realize it. You know, guilt is such an interesting thing. And I think that we live in a really interesting cultural moment right now in regard to this feeling of guilt. And here's why. Because on the one hand, there are a lot of people out there who would tell you, you should just do whatever makes you happy and you shouldn't ever feel guilty about it, right? They say, do whatever you want and don't let anybody make you feel guilty. They might say, the problem with religion is that religions make people feel guilty for doing things that they enjoy doing. So what we ought to do is we ought to get rid of religion and we ought to just let everybody do whatever makes them feel good and whatever they want to do and stop telling people to feel bad. Franz Kafka, he's a writer, he said this, this is what characterizes the modern age is that we feel sinful, but we don't feel guilty. 
We feel sinful, but we don't feel guilty. In other words, we, we do things that we know are wrong, but we've convinced ourselves that we don't have to feel bad about it. We know the things we're doing are wrong, but we've told ourselves, okay, maybe it's wrong, but you don't have to feel bad about it. So on the one hand, you have people saying, like Franz Kafka, right? Do whatever you want and don't ever feel guilty about it. But on the other hand, wouldn't you agree that there are more people telling you right now that you should feel guilty about more things than ever before? There is somebody out there who wants you to feel guilty about literally everything you do, right? If you drive a car, you should feel guilty about that because you're ruining the environment. And if you drive an electric car, Maybe you should feel even more guilty because that's just ruining the environment in a different way. I saw a documentary about how the food industry is killing the environment and exploiting people. So if you eat food, you should feel guilty about that. If you water your lawn, if you wash your car, what kind of monster are you, right? If you wash your clothes or flush the toilet, you are using a valuable resource and you should feel guilty about that. Your very existence is damaging the environment and is a detriment to other people. So you should feel guilty about that. Your electronics, where did those come from? Your clothes, unless you grew and harvested the material and made them yourselves without using water or machines, then you should feel guilty. If you have a lot of money, you should feel guilty about that. And if you have any money, you should feel guilty about that. If your ancestors did something that was wrong, you should feel guilty about that. And there are countless other things that people will point to and tell you you should feel guilty about them. And you know what? Maybe they're right. I'm not here to say that they're right or wrong about that. All I'm here to say is this. You know what? What are you going to do with all that guilt? Because if it's not those things that I pointed out, it's definitely something else. Because as all of us, as human beings, we have this nagging sense of guilt that we cannot shake because we know that whether in one way or another way, we have done things that were not right. We have done things that hurt other people. In some cases, we've done things that were explicitly wrong. In other cases, we failed to do the right thing in certain situations. Everybody feels a nagging sense of guilt that none of us can shake. And there are different approaches that people take to deal with the guilt that they feel. Some people just try to ignore it, right? That's like that whole idea of, well, I'm going to do it even if I know it's wrong, but I'm not going to feel guilty about it, right? So they're trying to just suppress their feeling of, of guiltiness and tell themselves, it's okay, there's no problem here. So they're just trying to ignore that guilty feeling. Other people, the way that they manage their guilt is that they try to make up for it by trying to outweigh their guilty feelings by doing more good things so they can feel good about themselves and get rid of that nagging sense of guilt. But you know what? It's never enough. That nagging sense of guilt, it always remains. And yet, God tells us the real way, the true remedy for grief and guilt. And that brings us to the next part of our sentence. The remedy for grief and guilt is turning to Jesus. That, that's the remedy for grief and guilt. Look at what it says in verse 10. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So what this is telling us is that there are two ways that you can respond to your sense of guilt that you feel, your sense of grief over the wrong things that you've done. 
You see, if all you ever do is just feel bad, just kind of sit in that and just feel guilty and feel bad, that won't actually accomplish anything. That won't change anything. But if you allow your sorrow to drive you to repentance, that will lead to salvation and being, being able to have a clear conscience. In other words, there's a difference between just feeling bad about what you've done and repenting. The word repent, it simply means to change direction. It means to turn around. It means that you, you realize you were going in the wrong direction, and so you change course so you can go in the right direction now. Right? You don't go in the wrong direction any longer. You change directions in a different way. Repentance isn't a bad word. It's not a negative word. It's a word that's great because it leads to joy. You see, repentance is a change of heart and a change of mind that results in a change of actions. When Jesus proclaimed the gospel, the very first words he said were, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the apostles, when they spoke to the crowds about what Jesus had accomplished, this is what they said. They said, repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. And I love what they said next. And so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that he may send to you the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. In other words, the remedy for grief and guilt, the way that grief can turn to joy is through repentance, is through turning to Jesus. Now, why is turning to Jesus the remedy for our grief and guilt? That brings us to the next part of our sentence. The remedy for grief and guilt is turning to him who bore our griefs. Speaking about Jesus, God spoke through the prophet Isaiah, who foretold this about what Jesus would do when he came. He said this, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. You see, on the cross, as Jesus suffered and died, all of our sins, the things which cause us to feel the sense of guilt, the things which cause so much grief and sorrow in the world, all of those sins were placed upon him. And he, Jesus, bore them in our place as he hung upon the cross. And because of his death in your place, you can be healed. And you can have peace of mind and a clear conscience, knowing that the judgment for your sins has been paid, not by you, but for you. And as a result, your guilt has been cleared. Notice something about this passage here in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Paul is talking about godly sorrow that leads to repentance. But who is he talking to? He's talking to Christians. And he's telling Christians that even though they're already Christians, they still need to repent. And the reason he's so proud of them, the reason he's so optimistic about them, is because when they were confronted with something they were doing that was wrong, they repented. Now, here's what that means. It means, first of all, repentance is not just a one-time thing. It's not just something that you do once in your life when you first come to faith in Jesus, and then you've ticked that box and you're done with it for good. Rather, repentance 
is something that you do over and over throughout your life as you follow Jesus. In fact, it's a way of life. It's course correcting, recalibrating whenever you realize that you've gone off course or you're doing something that's wrong. You repent, you confess that you've been wrong, you change course, and you align yourself once again with the way of Jesus. The other thing it tells us is this, that what characterizes the life of a Christian is the practice, the habitual practice of repentance. You see, rather than being hard-hearted people, as followers of Jesus, we seek to be people with soft hearts who are quick to admit when we're wrong and repent and turn back to Jesus because we know that the end result of repentance is not sorrow. The end result of repentance is joy. You see, we're turning away from the things that cause pain and hurt. And we know that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. You see, here in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, Paul is describing here, he's describing two kinds of grief over realizing that you've done something wrong. But listen, these two kinds of grief that he describes here, they could also be described as the difference between conviction and condemnation. Conviction and condemnation. You see, conviction and condemnation sound similar, but they're very different. They start at the same place. They start with a realization that you've done something wrong. But the difference is this. Conviction is a work of the Holy Spirit in which the Spirit of God brings about a sense of conviction that something you did was wrong and calls you, invites you to repent of your sins and turn back to Jesus. Condemnation, on the other hand, is when Satan tries to convince you that your sins are so bad that there is no hope for you and God could never forgive you of what you've done. You see, conviction is from God in order to draw you to himself in repentance. Condemnation is from the devil in order to drive you away from God. And here's the incredible promise that we have from God in his word. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And here's why. Because we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. An advocate is somebody who goes to bat for you, somebody who pleads your case, somebody who sticks up for you. And that's what Jesus has done for us. He came to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves, to live a life of perfect obedience to the Father, to take our place in judgment on the cross, and then to rise again, conquering over death and making a way for us to have eternal life. If you are ever tempted to feel that your sins are so great that God could never forgive you, never accept you, or that God is finished with you because you've sinned one too many times, please understand that no matter how great your sins, Jesus is an even greater Savior. And rather than listening to the devil's voice of condemnation, instead respond to the Holy Spirit's voice of conviction, calling you back to Jesus, the wellspring of life where abundant mercy and grace await you every time you turn back to him. Friends, listen, there is no sin so great that his grace is not greater still. And that brings us to the end of our sentence here, which is this. The remedy for grief and guilt is turning to him who bore our griefs and provides present comfort and eternal hope. In the remaining verses in this chapter, Paul explains why he's so optimistic and hopeful about the Christians there in Corinth. Because 
They were willing to acknowledge their sins and repent and turn back to Jesus. And he says, that is a sign of spiritual life, right? It's kind of like if I poke you with something sharp. If you don't feel anything, if you don't react and respond, that's a reason for concern. There's something right there that's not, it's not working. But the fact that the Corinthians felt conviction and turned to the Lord, it's a sign of spiritual life. And for that, Paul is glad. You see, here in this chapter, we see an example of how God works through the community of believers to bring comfort and conviction and encouragement when each of those things is needed. And it reminds me of one of the, one of the most well-known and yet least understood things that Jesus said. In Jesus' most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus began that sermon with these words. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then he said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, that's beautiful, but what does it mean, right? Like, what does that actually mean? What does it mean to be poor in spirit? And why is it that those who are poor in spirit are the ones who receive the kingdom of heaven? And how is it that those who mourn are going to be comforted? When will that happen? How will that happen? What is this saying? The key to understanding this passage is to understand what it means to be poor in spirit. To be poor in spirit is an attitude of grief over your poor spiritual condition. That's what we've been talking about today, right? Right, grief, guilt. You see, to be poor in spirit is to have this attitude of grief over your spiritual poverty. In other words, it means that you recognize that you are spiritually bankrupt. It means that you recognize that you are an imperfect person who has fallen short of God's standards and God's glory. And Jesus is so bold as to say, if that's you, then man, you are blessed because the kingdom of heaven belongs to people like that. And then he says, blessed are those who mourn because they'll be comforted. For those who mourn because of the effect of sin in the world, the effect of sin on their lives, because of the grief and guilt that they feel over their own actions, Jesus says, blessed are you for you will be comforted. You see, the way that those who mourn will be comforted is through God's presence here and now as he welcomes you to himself by his grace and then through the hope of eternal life that is to come because of the salvation that Jesus has purchased for you. And the way you receive that comfort and enter into the kingdom of heaven is not by just feeling bad about your sins, but by repenting turning to Jesus in faith, placing your trust in him and what he's done for you and receiving his grace. And as you do that, not only will you experience times of refreshment from the presence of the Lord here and now, but you'll also experience the relief and the hope that comes from knowing that your sins have been forgiven and that eternal life awaits you. You know, there's an interesting verse in the book of Romans, chapter two, verse four, where it says that God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. It reminds me of a story, just in closing, that a friend of mine told me. You know, she grew up and she had a very difficult relationship with her mother as she was growing up because her mom was a fairly selfish person and her mom's selfishness really caused my friend a lot of suffering and sorrow throughout her life. 
Uh, and for years, this friend of mine, she harbored a lot of resentment towards her mother. And she, she didn't talk to her for years, for example, because of the suffering that her mom put her through. But then my friend became a Christian. And as she realized what God had done for her in Christ, how God had forgiven her, how God had shown her grace, she realized that she needed to forgive her mom for the things that her mom had done that hurt her. And so she did. She just decided unilaterally, even though her mom had never apologized for what she had done, she decided, I'm going to forgive my mom for everything she's done that hurt me. And after that happened, she started talking to her mom again. They started talking on the phone. And several years went by like that until one day her mom called her on the phone and was crying. And her mom said to her, I want you to know that I'm so sorry for all the ways that I hurt you in the past. And my friend told her mom, she said, Mom, I've already forgiven you. And her mom said, I know. That's what gave me the courage to say I'm sorry. And in a way, that's what it's like with Jesus. You see, he's already done everything to cleanse you of your sin, to take away your guilt. And knowing that is what gives us the courage to repent of our sins and turn back to him again and again. Maybe there are some of you here today, you need to do that. That's what God is, his message for you today is that. You need to do that in some area of your life, even today. There's an area of your life where you need to repent. I want to tell you this. Don't be afraid to repent because repentance is the way that grief can turn to joy. The remedy for grief and guilt is turning to him who bore our griefs and provides present comfort and eternal hope. Would you please bow your heads with me and let's pray. You have been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Make sure to tap the subscribe button if you would like to have new messages delivered to your device every week when they are released. If you have been blessed by this message and would like to support our ministry, you can do so by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or by giving a donation to our church on our website at whitefieldschurch.com.